Women's Humanity Arts Festival at Artscape. Woman's Zone, in conjunction with Artscape, bring you a series of six special podcasts featuring women with important stories and messages to share. If you'd like to know more, find us on Facebook, Woman's Own CT, or email info at womanszonect.co.za. Karen Lazar, English lecturer and writer, has given the combined issues of gender and disability much thought. I think that disabled women, like aging women, become invisible in patriarchal cultures where women are objectified. There have been many occasions when I have literally felt people don't see me. One becomes invisible when one loses the body beautiful category in Western patriarchal terms. And I think that another feature of disability is people were a little bit puzzled as to how I could be in a wheelchair and be a mom. So motherhood changed inflection. And as you saw from one of my episodes in Echoes, G-A-Z-E, Gaze, I found that an elderly English professor, whose name I won't mention, used to flirt with me tirelessly before my stroke. He only ever interacted with my breasts. And after my stroke, I saw him again at an English conference. He didn't even see me. Mm. And that was both a gain and a loss. Well, much to be learned, gained and lost as a disabled woman. But Karen Lazar wasn't always disabled. She was, and still is, a lecturer at a number of actual and online campuses teaching English and professional literacies, writing also on medical humanities. But back in 2001, she suffered a stroke that changed her life. She's subsequently written two books on her experience, Hemispheres, Inside a Stroke, and Echoes, an anthology of poetry, she says very clearly that she speaks for no one but herself, but where she can, she does like to put forward the voices and perceptions of disabled people who may not otherwise be seen or heard. I'm Nancy Richards, and I spoke to Karen and asked her first to talk about what she does. My work is quite varied. I work with writing in a range of ways. I teach professional literacies to young lawyers. I've taught some business people. I'm also a writing coach and mentor. And the professional literacies is really the idea that people come out of varsity, even with postgraduate degrees, not necessarily knowing how to write within their professional disciplinary environment. So for example, there are particular writing genres in legal practice, from as simple as an affidavit to as complex as an appeal to the Supreme Court. That's just one example. But writing isn't often taught explicitly. What are the expectations of the genre? So I teach that, I teach genre. I also teach creative writing genres, be it memoir or poetry or drama. So I suppose I teach how one may enable students and young professionals to write better with an emphasis on clarity and precision. Sometimes, Gosh. as we both know, simple is best. Yes, especially in legal terms and especially in academic terms. But you know, you and I could be talking about this for a very long time. It's very, very interesting. 
But who taught you to write? How did the writing bug get to you? Do you mean who taught me to write creatively? Well, yes. I mean, why did you choose the writing path? Well, I am a literature major in university. So I say rather sadly, what taught me to write is reading. And so few young people read anymore. So it is the love of reading, the, the wonder of a sentence beautifully constructed. What taught me to write is reading. Academically, I suppose, what taught me to write was modeling, reading academic writing, which I don't particularly love. I do prefer literary writing, creative yeah. writing. Yes. Gosh, again, it was something we could be talking about for a long time, but you know, you talk about could. it's it's almost as if writing is almost not possible unless you are a reader. And I think with great sadness of how many people for whom um, books are just not accessible, neither in time or in terms of physical books, it, you know, which precludes an awful lot of people who've got a lot to say from actually writing. It certainly does. But the interesting thing is at all the tertiary campuses at which I've taught, even when the demography of students is very poor, students have smartphones. So they do have access to Wikipedia, endless WhatsApps and tweets and memes. And there are certain book sites that are accessible by Moby such as the African Storybook Project or the Funza Library. So I think perhaps students don't know that that's available by smartphone. Or um, the students haven't really invested at school in reading anything bigger than 35 characters. So I think teachers and writing coaches have a responsibility to encourage reading. And it's so interesting that you say that because we, you know, everybody says, oh, goodness me, WhatsApp tweets, you know, everybody's writing is so poor as a result of those. But actually, they could be seen as tools to the future. I mean, they are they're not going to go away anytime soon. So we maybe need to rethink. But so we need to mobilize digital literacy yes. as well. Gosh, and my a... approach to literacy is that it is not a single thing. It is not just print literacy, which is reading and writing. So I'm working within what we could call a multi-literacies paradigm in which visual literacy, digital literacy, as well as print literacy are a multi-competency package of skills, as it were. That is so incredibly important, you know, because a digital literacy, just the idea of digital literacy opens up the possibility of accessibility enormously which leads us straight into the conversation that I'm hoping we can have about disability or people living with disabilities. But before we get there, Corinne, let's find out a little bit about you because it sounds like you have a very busy professional life or a very intense professional life because you're talking to a lot of people about many different subjects that affect everybody. And yet you yourself were very nearly stopped in your tracks. And I think, was it 20 years ago? I think you had... Um, 21, a, yes, 21 well, years ago. Uh, I suppose 21 years is something to celebrate, but we're celebrating it because here you are talking loud and clear and on very important topics. What happened 21 years ago? I had an atypical stroke 
it wasn't a lifestyle stroke due to smoking or high blood pressure or any of the common factors in South Africa. My stroke was a consequence of brain surgery. I was very fortunate to have a very large benign brain tumor removed successfully, which had caused me to go blind in one eye. And the operation was successful. I can see perfectly. I watched my two children grow up. But unfortunately, the brain is an irritable organism. And I had a stroke in the recovery room shortly after a 10-hour surgery. So that's what happened. But I was very healthy and active before and after the stroke. Can you describe to me and possibly other people who don't know either, what does stroke actually mean? There are two kinds of stroke. And within those two kinds, there are gradations of severity. So the one kind is called an ischemic stroke. And that occurs when there is a blockage of some kind, like a clot, so that the oxygen supply to areas of the brain is stopped by some kind of blockage usually a clot, but it could be a flap in the vessel or something like that. That's the ischemic type of stroke. That a hemorrhagic stroke is when there is a bleed that floods the brain. And it seems as if I had a post-operative ischemic stroke, which affected the right hemisphere of my brain. So the left side of my body is paralyzed. Hence the title of your book, your first book, published um, back in 2011, I think it was, Hemispheres Inside a Stroke, So, which is a fascinating book. Um, Again, we'll get to it later. But you talk about you being paralyzed on the left side of your body. Is that your whole body? And yet there is nothing wrong with the activity of your brain, neither your speaking voice, and mercifully, neither your writing ability. So what did you lose? What have you kept? So I have short distance walking with the help of a leg brace and a crutch. I have never regained use of my left arm, but I have full use of my right body. A linguistic oddity is that I've lost my second language, which is French. Um, I'm an English speaker, but I majored in French at university and I was completely fluent before the stroke. So I lost that second language, which is odd because it suggests that the first and second language might be stored in different hemispheres of the brain. But I've only lost an aspect of that second language. I've kept vocabulary and accent perfectly, but I've lost syntax. So I've lost the complex structure of the language. If a French speaker speaks to me slowly without too many clauses in a sentence, I understand. But the minute there are too many clauses, I lose it. Gosh, you so, are, I was just going to say you're almost a thesis in yourself, aren't you? The fact that you've discovered all those things and that different parts of language could be stored in different parts of brains. It, it's fascinating. And thank you very much for bringing, bringing it to everybody's attention. So that's what you've lost, but you, but you still have the ability to do all sorts of things, but there must have been a very scary transition period when you were mourning what you'd lost and rediscovering yeah. what you still had. How did that work? I mean, 
the level of shock, you know, the level of adjustment is quite hard to put into words. So I think that's one of the reasons why I've done creative writing is to try and capture what metamorphosis is like. And it was a difficult adjustment, especially when one has been very active, very much the primary agent in one's own life. So I think the biggest adjustment was that shift in agency and independence. Not easy to give up independence. It was very hard to fathom. Especially as a woman, I'm guessing, because one tends to do so much, maybe I'm generalizing, but one tends to do so much. You had two small children of six and nine at the time. And, you know, you just get on with stuff, don't you, as a woman? And to have to pass that on to somebody else must have been very, very hard. It was very hard. And I think as a woman, you're absolutely right. One has striven since one is a pubescent girl to become independent. And then to relinquish that, it also meant that my son and daughter, Raphael and Julia, had to become independent very early, which I think is beneficial. Also about redefining achievement as a woman. You know, I was so used to defining achievement as, now we'll do the MA, oh, that's finished, well, we better do the PhD. And honestly, I think with stroke, sometimes the achievement is getting out of bed in the morning. Yes. I remember talking to a woman who had a child with cerebral palsy, and she said, you have no idea that an achievement is just being able to get a spoon to the mouth and getting in a mouthful. And that's something to celebrate. And, you know, really I'm, thinking, I'm thinking also as a woman that two things that you would have lost or certainly that would have been dented would have been dignity and self-esteem. Were those yes. sad losses? Yes. And um, it's, it's very interesting you picked up on that because I think I was a chronic apologizer before the stroke. But after the stroke, I almost became a compulsive apologize. Sorry, is my wheelchair blocking you, blocking your way? You know, I'm sorry, may I ask you please to hold open the door? And through having really wonderful therapists and friends and family, I have learned to stop doing that. But one is accompanied by stairs, S-T-A-R-E, by stairs, by a hostile gaze or a curious gaze, and one becomes accustomed to that, perhaps one becomes accustomed to challenging it. But I remember Julia, age seven, when we went to see the first Harry Potter film. It was a big day. Mum in the wheelchair, two kids to see this movie, and everyone was staring. And I think, you know, my kids were acutely aware of their own self in the world. And Julia said to me, Mum, don't you mind the staring? And... I don't anymore. I think often people who stare are curious. Yeah. So, yes, and that relates to self-esteem. Yeah. As you mentioned, there was a lot of shame initially because I don't have the kind of body that is validated by men and by the world. Yeah, gosh. You know, you talk about being an apologist, but I'm also thinking, and it's very kind and generous of you to think that people are staring because they're curious. People have a nasty streak in them and who knows why they're staring, but they're staring, which the fact remains that that is in itself hurtful. 
And I'm thinking that apology might give way to anger. Was there not a period when you were very angry, not just with what had happened to you, but with other people's approach? Um, I think there have been moments of anger. I think it's not the predominant feeling, but yes, there have been moments of anger um, and frustration with people not knowing, may I mention an anecdote or is it going to take too long? Same Julia, my daughter and I went off to movies, of course, hardly goes to the cinema anymore. But a couple of years ago, Julia and I went off to see something and it was a long walk, so I was on my wheels. And as we approached the door of the movie theater, Julia said to this young Asher, he didn't have a name tag on, I don't know who he was. She said, is there somewhere where my mom can park inside the, the cinema so that I can sit next to her? You know, is there a little bit of extra space? And the Asher said, what makes you think she's special? <gasps> Now, I hear your gasp, Nancy, and that is the natural response. Mm. And I don't blame that young man. Probably he'd been working for 12 hours already. But I think that word, that question, what makes you think you're special, is very telling. Because yeah. on the one hand, disabled people want to be like everybody else. On the other hand, we are not all I'm cautious of my pronoun we, because I cannot speak for everybody. But disabled people are not like everybody else. So what does special dispensation mean? Or I think the British phrase is reasonable accommodation. What does reasonable accommodation look like in the public sphere? Does it make able-bodied people feel less special? Perhaps yes. Yeah. There's so many, so many things in what you've just said there. And I'm thinking, was it Julia, the very young Julia, who referred to your brain tumour as the tuna? Yes, she did. <laughs> Bless her heart. I love that piece in your book. But, you know, I'm just thinking about this young Usher and the starers and all the other people who make your life perhaps a little less comfortable than it could be. And for you, you had the opportunity eventually to accommodate your, your losses, work with what you had, and you sort of grew back into yourself. But for other yes. people, there is no such training. And very often, from what I hear, the, one of the difficulties that people with disabilities have is not themselves, not the problems they have for themselves, but the problems they have with other people, either treating them like, yes. um, like children, or somebody once said that people don't talk to people in wheelchairs, they talk to the person who's pushing the wheelchair. And, right. you know, things like that, you sort of, you must want to stand up and shout and say, but what about me? How do you deal with other people? Do you draw attention to your disability so that they can not feel uncomfortable? How do you work with others? Thanks, Nancy. That has been a long process. And periodically, my spiritual therapist and my occupational therapist have sort of got to give me a few reminders. I think a lot of the time people want to know how to help. What is the best form of help I can give you? And often it's about information and education. People aren't educated in how to help disabled people. So a lot of the time it's simply a matter of communication. Could you please do this? But I also believe in forming a contract with my students 
So when I arrived, let's say I arrive at a new group of students, 300 kids in a lecture theater. It is absolutely natural for them to stare. Now we've got this new lecturer and she's on wheels. So when I introduce myself, I say, hi, I'm Karen Lazar. I'm a stroke survivor. So that I am in control of the information rather than the wondering and the muttering and the rumors. I set the scene and I say, this is what you can expect from me. And this is what I expect of you. So a kind of contract of expectations is helpful. But Nancy, if I might add to that, everything we've said so far is that my stroke is 100% enabled by my class position. The fact that I am white and middle-class and privileged and ed educated, that is the pervasive parameter of my stroke. So everything I do is enabled by privilege. Well, thank you for using your privilege. And I, can I also apologize for having called you Karen when in fact it's Karen. It's so fine. I'm it's sure fine. that happens all the time, but my apologies. It's but thank, not a problem. Thank you for drawing attention to the privilege situation because, you know, one nobody wants to, um, what's the word, um, appropriate anybody else's story. But you do say that one of the things that you, you that you wish to do is to put forward the voices and perceptions of disabled people who may not otherwise be seen or heard. And there are many reasons why a person with disability is not able to be seen or heard. One may be because of their disability that may not allow them to speak or to write or to hear or all those things. But it may also be because of their lack of privilege in the world. And we were talking earlier about people who have no access to books, to reading, to you know all the things that go with being educated and privileged, if you like. So do you work a lot with people like that directly, with people in those sort of situations? Are you able to help? Um, I've done some disability advocacy, in fact, further back, like into, um, for the first five years of my stroke, I, I, I became a motiv motivational speaker at Stroke Aid, an organization called Head Start. So I've tried to do that. But my work as a disability advocate has mainly been in the environments where I myself are working. So I've been working a lot on various campuses. I currently have a, a student with, this, with cerebral palsy. And he and I have worked together on facilitating his access to the library, for example. And I've worked a lot with students who don't have eyesight at this. So I work locally on the various campuses. There's so much work for you to do. I, I, as you talk, I'm thinking about all the people who could do with your help, because as with so many other things, like, for instance, grief or parenthood people can tell you all sorts of things but unless they themselves have been there they're not really in a position to help and you yourself because you are there you've been there quite literally you're able to help you know your book your first book hemispheres inside a stroke is as a very telling little collection of cameos of events that happened and I can't help thinking gosh you know there you were lying in this bed with all these people around you thinking all these thoughts did you keep a journal to write it all down and I'm thinking I did. Of, 
how helpful that must have been, whether it's a written, a written journal or recorded journal. So you put those thoughts down straight away. I did. Um, but in fact, a lot of hemispheres is reconstructed through recollection. But I did journal at the time, even mind mapping. It was quite cathartic to try and maintain my identity as a problem solver. Okay, Karen, now this thing has happened. What are we going to do? Uh, I think I try to start problem solving from very early. But also the identity issues you mentioned earlier, Nancy, with self-esteem and agency and independence. Um, I, I suppose I was interested in identity. What's my identity now? Who is this new Karen Hazar? Is she still Karen Hazar? What does it mean? So I think if one is raised to ask the question, what does it mean? I'm not a religious person, although I have been raised secular Jewish. The what does it mean question was unavoidable very early on. Mm -hmm. Hence, you mentioned a spiritual therapist there. So it seems to me that the approach you took is less poor me and more the power of me. And the power of you in particular is, is very strong because not only were you able to write hemispheres, you also went on to produce a wonderful little book. And it's wonderful that you haven't lost your sense of humor. A little book called Echoes, which is an anthology of poetry, which are very poignant. There's something about poetry that you can say things in poems that you can't necessarily say in prose. If you had any advice for somebody living with disability who may have any number of problems, access, a disability to write, because through Artscape, we've been working with a, a writing course for people living with disabilities, because very often people living with disabilities don't write because they can't for whatever reason. So what advice would you would you offer? Would it be to pour out your your unhappiness? Would it be what would it be? It's so variable. That question, that situation, I think I would want to say to this other person, ask for help. Don't be shy to ask for help and guide people as to what shape that help needs to be. And also perhaps to say, it's never over. Recovery is never over. There might be very subtle improvements, many years hence. And in terms of writing, in terms of asking for help, I suppose there would be nothing to stop a person dictating their feelings if they could get somebody to write it down for them if they're struggling. You can record it on your phone. You know, people do have access now. Yes. Record it on your phone, even if it is simply to express it not hoping for output or publication. Yeah. On the subject of which, um, Karen, you've produced two lovely books. Do you, are you, it sounds like you're hectically busy. Are you planning any more creative writing? I am actually. Thanks for asking. I've got a new one ready. It's about oh. to go to the publisher. It's very different from the last two. Hemispheres and Echoes were a kind of hybrid of prose and poetry. This one's a novella. So it's very different from the others. Disability isn't its main subject. It's more a kind of post-apartheid critique. Okay. So that should be out soon. What's it called? What can we look for? 
I'm hoping it will be called W is for witness, but my publisher is not sure she likes that. So we, we're knocking things around. Okay. How lovely to have a publisher, how lovely to have a book ready to roll, and how lovely to be able to roll. Karen, it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you, and I just feel you Thank have you. so much. There's so many more things we could talk about. But if anybody would like to find out a little more about you, what you do, we've talked about medical humanities, which in itself is a huge topic. How can they how can they find out more about you? Thank you. I'm on Insta and Facebook book. And also I, perhaps you can include my email, which is small case L-A-Z-A-R 20961 at gmail.com. People are very welcome to mail me. So it's L-A-Z-A-R-2-0-0-9-6-1 at gmail.com. Karen, it's been absolutely fascinating and I look forward enormously to your next book. And all strengths, importantly, to all that you do to help other people put down their words and their thoughts in whatever way and for whatever reason. I think that is just such a gift that you're giving the rest of the world. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Stay well.